We might say things like, if only I had known, I would have done differently. So again, that, that's why we say hindsight is twenty twenty because once everything has unfolded, uh, you're able to see what really occurred when before you could have only guessed what could have happened. Um, and the truth is we can't know the future. Uh, and, and so we say things like, the past is the past. And, and, and do your best to, you know, uh, live without regret. And it, we say things like that because we can't know the future. But what if I told you you could know the future? What if I told you you could know the future? Do you think that that would make you live any differently? Well, well, of course, right? If, if you could know the future, um, that would make you live differently. Just, just imagine uh, I had a magic iPhone, okay? And all you have to do is hold down the button and ask Siri, and she would be able to tell you. You could just hold down the button and say, uh, you know, Siri, um, should I take this job, right? What, Siri, what will happen if I take this job? And she says, you will be fired in three weeks, what would you do then, right? You, you wouldn't then go to the job. I mean, that, that, that's very simple. You know, if you held the button down and said, Siri, what will happen if I marry this person? You know, Siri replies, you will live happily ever after and have beautiful babies, right? What, what do you do then? Well, you then go. So, so there is something about if you could know the future, it would then make you live differently, would it not? Well, well, it absolutely would. So, so what if I told you you could know the future? Now, that is not to say uh, we can know every single thing or every single event or every detail in every event, but we can know one event that does happen in the future which necessarily changes how we live today. That one event in the future is the resurrection from the dead. That one event, which is sure to happen because it's told to us in God's word, that future event does necessarily change how we live today, and we are to live in light of that future glory. So as we think about that great coming day, the resurrection of the dead, when all people will be raised out of their graves and, and given new bodies, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting shame and contempt, that then should become the lens in which we view everything else. Christians, there, there should be this reoccurring thought in our minds as we go throughout our day and, and as we make decisions about life that, that reoccurring thought should be, one day I will stand before the Lord. Should I take this job? Well, I'm going to stand before the Lord. So, so what does that mean? What are the implications of me taking this new job in light of or through the lens of I'm going to stand before the Lord the day I'm resurrected from the dead? Should I marry this person? Should I go to this school? Should I buy this house? Should we go on vacation? Friends, all of those type of choices should be viewed through the lens of one day I will stand before the Lord on the day that the dead are resurrected. Should I click on this website? 
Should I pray with my wife and children? Should I serve and give at my local church? All of those questions should be seen through the lens of one day there will be a resurrection of the dead and I will stand before the Lord. So with that future knowledge of that future event, then how do I make those decisions? That's the sermon, okay? Um, that, that's, that's me done. Um, so what we're going to do now is um, look at this text. Um, and so what we have been doing, if you've been following along with us, is we have been going through um, this book chapter by chapter. Uh, if you remember, I told you last week that chapters 10, 11, and 12 essentially serve as a unit. Uh, in chapter 10, there was the setup to the vision. Daniel met this man clothed in linen, and, and, and we, we said that, that he is this unnamed uh, messenger, unnamed angel from God come to reveal this vision to Daniel. And so what we saw in chapter 10 was essentially the setup of that vision. In chapter 11, what we get is the angel or the messenger essentially unfolds to Daniel uh, what is in the future, the future things to come. And then chapter 12 is essentially the conclusion or the big giant bow on the package or uh, the, the close of this great book uh, named Daniel. So um, here is what we're going to do. It's going to be a little bit different, right? Um, so in chapter 11, uh, we have 45 verses of very detailed uh, historical accounts of future events to Daniel. So what we're going to do is we are going to sprint Okay, uh, so mentally, you need to go ahead and lace up your sneakers. Uh, mentally, you need to get a drink of water. You need to uh, stretch so you don't pull a hammy uh, because we are going to be traveling through 45 verses at, at a breakneck speed, okay? So once we get through chapter 11, we're also going to do chapter 12, okay? So uh, I hope you packed a lunch because, no, I'm just kidding. What, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to hopefully get to the end uh, and get you guys out to lunch before the Baptists, okay? So, and the Methodists, God love them. Here we go, chapter 11. Um, so, in chapter 11, there is going to be an onslaught of kings, battles, political maneuvering. It will cover hundreds of years of future events in great detail, and you guessed it, the people of God are going to suffer, be oppressed, but will be preserved and victorious in the very end, okay? So go ahead, uh, if you don't have your Bibles open to chapter 11, it's not gonna come up on the screen because we're moving so fast, but go ahead and get your eyes on Daniel chapter 11. Um, I'm just gonna read verses one through four very quickly. And as for me, in the first year, Darius the Mede, I stood up uh, to confirm and strengthen him, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than all of them, and he will become strong with, uh, with his riches. He shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule the great dominion and do as he wills. As soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity nor according to the authority of which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. 
So if you have been with us in the book of Daniel, what you have discovered is that there is a five kingdom motif in the book of Daniel. There is a five kingdom reoccurrence that we see again and again and again. Now, if you remember those five kingdoms, they are these, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and what's the final kingdom? The kingdom of God, okay? So, so that we, we've seen that uh, those uh, five kingdoms play out time and time again. Who remembers the big giant statue that, that Nebuchadnezzar saw? Okay, he saw a big giant statue. It was made up of how many pieces? It was made up of four pieces and then a rock that was hewn by no human hand comes and, and destroys that statue. That rock then becomes a kingdom that lasts forever. So again, you have the four pieces of the statue, the rock that makes the fifth kingdom. Okay, so that's the, the five kingdom motif. In addition, you remember how many beasts came up out of the sea? Four. Four beasts came up out of the sea. Then Daniel saw the kingdom of God, the son of man. Okay, so, so that makes the fifth kingdom. So we've seen this five kingdom uh, motif happen, this five kingdom theme, and we're right back in the middle of that five kingdom theme. And the lens here in verses one through four is zooming into this third kingdom, which is the kingdom of Greece. Okay. So uh, here there is no difference. In verses one through four, we see the shift of powers from Medo-Persia to the mighty king. Who, is, who was the mighty king of Greece? Well, we said that that was Alexander uh, the Great, but we know that it does not last long. Alexander the Great takes over the known world in 12 years, yet he dies at the age of 33, and then his kingdom is divided into four kingdoms. So the kingdom of Greece then gets separated out uh, to his four generals. Uh, that was shown to us with the leopard who had four wings, and you remember the, the crazy uh, flying unicorn goat? Once his horn was broken off, Four horns came up in its place, uh, so Alexander the Great's kingdom is divided into uh, four parts. That's verses one through four, uh, verses five through 19. You guys still running with me? Okay, we're, we're gonna get through this together, I promise. Here we go. In verses five through 19, I won't read all of it. I'm just gonna jump to verse 14. It says, uh, in those days, many shall rise against the king of the south. Okay, so this is one of the four kingdoms of Greece. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take well-fortified cities, and the uh, forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So we have seen the, the zooming lens onto the third kingdom. What we see next is a focus on the Greek empire. This prophecy tells us, and history even confirms, that an alliance between the north and the south kingdom was made through a marriage, uh, was made by a marriage, but then essentially breaks down. This is clearly the Seleucid Empire, which is based in Syria, uh, which would be the North Empire, north of Jerusalem, uh, and the Ptolemy Empire, which is based in Egypt, uh, which would have been south, the South Empire. Okay, verse 16 clearly states that God's people are back in Israel, but things are not going smoothly for them. That that was the reference to 
to the glorious land, destruction in their hand. Uh, so these uh, kingdoms of Greece are warring with each other. Uh, they're, they're trying to make alliances. They do that through, through a marriage, but that essentially breaks down and, and they're warring uh, back and forth with each other. What we see in verses 20 through 45, this massive, massive section, I'll just start in verse 36 and read to uh, 37. It says this, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against uh, the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the beloved, uh, beloved by women. Uh, that's a reference to Diana. Uh, he shall not pay attention to any other gods, for he shall magnify himself above all. In this very last section, what this messenger is outlining to Daniel uh, is the rule of one terrible, terrible king whom we have discussed before, one named Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he gave to himself the name Epiphanes, which means God incarnate. Apparently, he thinks very highly of himself. He ruled from 175 till his death in 164. Uh, he was a king of the Seleucid Empire. He sought to make everything and everyone Greek. You did not just have to obey the law, but you also had to adopt his customs. Uh, he comes in and begins to rule over Jerusalem with an iron fist. He put pagan relics in the holiest place in the temple of Jerusalem. He burned pig's flesh on the altar and dedicated the temple of God to, the t uh, to Zeus. Uh, he burned the Torah any time that he would find it. Uh, they were forbidden, the people of God were forbidden to practice Jewish holidays or festivals or even admit that they were Jewish. The, this prophecy tells of a very, very troubling time happening in Jerusalem during the reign of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. He even went as far as to outlaw um, circumcision, which for the people of God was the sign of the covenant. Um, and extra biblical accounts tell us that uh, two such women were found and they had given their sons the sign of the covenant. And Antiochus Epiphanes took these women, he killed their babies, tied them around their necks, paraded them through the city, and then threw them off the tallest city wall. So this was a terrible, terrible time of destruction that is being foretold, uh, again, hundreds of years in, in advance uh, to Daniel. But look, uh, at the very end in verse 45, look at this. Yet he, that I think that's referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Okay, so kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Uh, this thing happens, this thing happens. There is terrible oppression on the people of God, yet all the people who oppress the people of God, anybody who comes against them, though they might oppress them, in the end, they die uh, God's people endure, okay? So that's exactly what we see here, there. We just did it, 45 verses in, what was that? What did I do in two minutes, three minutes, okay? Some of you are thinking, why doesn't he do that every week? Now, that's, that's what's going on in this very dense uh, in this very historically accurate account of future events. That, that, that's, that's what happens, okay? Now, what does it mean, right? So, so, you know, I've got a stack of commentaries. All of them are just rolling through all of the, you know, well, we think it's, you know, the, the North Kingdom is this and the South Kingdom is this and this king is this guy and this person is this and all this stuff. And, and, and I'm thinking, okay, great. 
and God has a message in this historical account, in this very deep, rich, um, accurate historical account, there, there is a message here for us today, okay? I, I, don't, I don't know if you're like me. I need good news today, okay? I, I, I've got issues, okay? Anybody else have issues? I, I've, I've got messes in my life. I've got scars. I've got hangups. I, I've got stuff going on. And so um, that's really cool about um, all the detailed historical accounts. But, but what does it mean for us? Well, quickly, let's look at a few things. Number one, here's what this means for us. Number one, know that God has a book. God has a book. Okay, what, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, turn back over to chapter 10. Turn back over to chapter 10 and look at verse 21. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. So God has a book um, and then from that book, there, there's, there's stuff written in that book. And so what this messenger does in all of chapter 11, he is essentially telling Daniel what is in this book of future events. So I think what that means is um, God has written a book of all future events. I'm assuming, this is total assumption, on the cover of this book that God has, the title of this book might be something like this, a past, present, and future history of all things that I will make happen because of my sovereign might and power. That's the working title of, of God's book. Now, the editors told him to shorten it, but he's God and he decided not to. Now, so on this, on this book that God has where he has written out all of future history, and again, the title just for fun is A Past, Present, and Future History of All Things That I Will Make Happen Because of My Sovereign Power. Right up underneath the title, it says this, written by God the Father, forwarded by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. If you flip that book over on the back, it would say this book is endorsed by all of creation and by God's past faithfulness. Now, his, his book is all the things that will come to pass as he directs history. You see, chapter 11 is God predicting history. How, so the question is, how can God predict future history? Because he directs history. That, that's how he can do that. So, so it's no problem for this angel, this messenger, to show up to Daniel and, and roll through 45 verses of very detailed future events. I mean, down to who marries who, how the kingdoms are destroyed, uh, specific details of things that happen. God can do that because he is directing all of history. It's, it's not a problem for him. And he's written all of it down in a book and those things will happen. So I thought about this this week. If God does have such a book where he has written out how all future history will turn out, what would that book be about? Well, that book that God has written about all future history, here is what that book is about. It's about God preserving a remnant for his glory and for our joy. That is what that book is about. That is what God has set out to do. God has set out to create a people for his own possession. Y'all were amen in last week. You're not amen in this week. You, you gotta, so, so in the garden, okay, so there's Adam and Eve. God says to them, be fruitful and 
multiply. Why? Because God is about creating a people for his own possession. He, he goes to Abraham and he tells him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of heaven because he was setting out to create a people for his own possession. So as the prophets come, the, the prophets begin to tell of them becoming this great nation. The prophets lay out laws and rules. And so we get all of these, you know, don't do this, don't eat that, don't wear this, don't go here, don't touch these things, eat this kind of food. Don't. Why? Why are all those laws and rules? Well, because God is creating a distinct people group for himself. So the prophets come and then the kings come to rule over that great nation of Israel. And then, so what we discover in the New Testament is a distinct specific people group, which is the nation of Israel. But by God's grace in the New Testament, he blows open uh, that uh, central ethnicity and allows all the nations to come in, uh, essentially creating one new man, one new nation by any who place their faith in God. They are now his people, not just or only the, the nation of Israel, but now it is anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ becomes the people of his own possession. And that is the direction of all of history. So as God has been unfolding all of history, that has been what he is after, creating a people for his own possession, for him to love, for him to serve, for him to pour out mercy, blessing, and peace upon until the final day when he institutes his final and forever kingdom. Hallelujah. Amen. So what we discover here is that God has this great book. This means we should have a biblical geopolitical perspective, meaning we should believe as Christians that God is running the world. When, the, when any government acquires and test fires nuclear weapons, when a country is invaded, when a terror organization attacks, or when any official anywhere takes office or is dismissed from any office, God is leveraging that to secure his remnant. God is leveraging all of it. He's directing all of it. Again, to what means and to what ends? To secure his people. The people that he set out to make be his own possession in the very beginning. Okay, so... What does that mean for us? So God has been directing all of human history. So God is still directing all of human history and has in his mind all future events and is going to use all of those future events to bring about creating a people for his own possession so we can live forever with him. What does that mean for you and me? Well, here's what it means. It means the end of anxiety. It means Worrying is the most senseless and pointless act as watching funny YouTube videos about cats. Right? It, it, it becomes insane and pointless to worry or to be filled with anxiety because God is in control. Some of us are freaking out. Freaking out about this, freaking out about that. Don't know what to do here. Don't know, I don't know about this, and I, I don't know about this relationship, and I don't know about this job, and I don't know about the economy, and, and, and who's going to take office, and, and, and we're just freaking out when God's in control. God's got a plan. He's been executing it for thousands of years without any hiccup, and I don't think he's going to start today. 
He, he hasn't had any problem dealing with the world's most massive problems. So why would he have any problem dealing with ours? In addition, what does this very historically accurate, detailed account in chapter 11 tell us? Well, number two, know that we should have a joyful expectancy for the future. Kings rose, kings died, people went to war. God's people were oppressed. That doesn't sound very joyful. Like like we should be joyfully expectant for the future, does it? And as a matter of fact, as, as we turn on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, whatever outlet you like, as, as we watch the headlines, maybe most of us would look at that and go, there's really no good reason to be joyfully expectant for the future. But friends, what chapter 11 tells us with the rise of empires, the fall of kings, the oppression of God's people, and, and, and all of that is God took all of that and he leveraged it for the joy of his people. So while the headlines looked terrible, God was behind the scenes orchestrating it for good. While the headlines were were abysmal and terrible and awful and, and the people are going, God, what are you doing? God is replying, I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm taking all of these dark and terrible things and I'm working them together for your joy. Here's what that means for us. It means good days are yet to come. Let me say that again. Good days are yet to come. Now, listen to me. That does not mean that there won't be suffering in those days. Now, wait a second. Don't those two things cancel each other out? <laughs> right? If, if I'm telling you right now, good days are yet to come for you, there are good days for the relationships that you're in. There are good days to come at your job. There are good days to come in parenting. There are good days to come. I'm telling you right now, I believe that with my whole heart. And I'm also telling you that in those days, there's going to be suffering. And here's why that doesn't cancel it out. Because, because most of us think if there is suffering, then those aren't good days. But here's why they're good days. Because God is so mighty, he's so powerful, he can take the suffering, he can take pain, he can take scars, and he can work it for good. God works all things together for good for those who love him, right? So, so that is what God is doing. And so we can clearly, firmly say, good days are yet to come for God's people, amen? Amen. There might be suffering in those days. There might be pain in those days. But what God is going to do is he's going to leverage that. He's going to mold that into something good, which will implant deep joy and security in the heart of the believer. Number three, what do we learn from this extensive historical account in chapter 11? Know that God's word is reliable trustworthy, and true. Chapter 11 predicts hundreds of years into the future with great detail. There were 
many, many liberal scholars who look at this chapter, look at chapter 11, and want to change the date of it uh, to be written much, much, much later. And what they say is, um, what is actually happening in the book of Daniel is not a future prophecy, uh, but, but it's actually a prophecy in reverse. So all that history has unfolded, and then years and years later, somebody just writes it down in this uh, literary style. That, that's what some have said. And the reason that they want to say that is because it is so incredibly accurate. And so to admit that this is so incredibly accurate and has been foretold would be to admit miracles, would be to admit that God actually does direct history, would be to admit that God does know the future because he directs the future. And some scholars don't want to do that. Friends, this is future prophecy. This is God telling what will happen, and it, it's incredible. I, 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 wish, I wish I had two, three hours just to walk us through chapter 11 and just show you how time and time again these prophecies came true and how history backs that right up. It, it, it was incredible to, to study it this week, okay? So, Again, here's what you need to know from this chapter. Know that God's word is reliable, trustworthy, and true. It is true 100% of the time, and it is never wrong. I, I, I think what that means for us is that we need to take this book, because it is God's word, and make it our ultimate authority. If it's 110% true, reliable, all the time, are you 110% reliable all the time? <laughs> no, okay. So, so now what makes sense then is to take what is always true and put it at the forefront of my life. It makes sense to take something that is always reliable when I know I'm not reliable. I, I, I know sometimes my friends aren't reliable. I know I'm not always a reliable friend. To take what is always true and always reliable and let that be the ultimate authority in my life. That means I take my logic, okay, and I set it over here up underneath God's word. That means I take my feelings and I put it up underneath God's word. That means I take my family, my friends, my spouse, and everything else, and I put it up underneath God's word because it is my ultimate authority. Amen? And so as we see this detailed account and all of these things come true, we know God's word is true and always reliable. So therefore, we submit every other thing up underneath it. Okay. So that's what chapter 11 says. Uh, and, and I also think that's what it means. Now, let's look at the conclusion uh, of this great book. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 12. So just a little bit about, um, uh, you guys know that the chapter and verse divisions uh, were put in later, okay? So, so the chapter and verse divisions uh, that we have in our Bibles are not God-inspired. They're, they're simply there to help us uh, find passages, like they work like addresses, um, to, to help us get to 
a passage. So like I said, we can view chapter 10, 11, and 12 as one full unit. It's not as if Daniel, uh, you know, got to verse, uh, you know, 45 uh, and said, you know, end of chapter 11, you know, turn the page, chapter 12. Okay, that, that's, not, that's not how this works. This is one continuous thought as we continue on. So let's take a look at chapter 12. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 4. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and... Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. But you, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. As we look at this great section, uh, we should read that first line and there should be a red flashing light with a question right up underneath it. Okay, so let's look at it. At that time, red flashing light, big giant question mark, what time? Okay, what time are you talking about? Uh, It's just rolled through hundreds of years of history in chapter 11. Uh, So, you know, okay, uh, can I get a clue here? You know, can uh, can I buy a vowel or something? We need need some help here in trying to figure out what time he is talking about because so much time has been traversed uh, just in 45 verses from chapter 11. Well, by God's grace... Uh, it continues to go on and help us understand what time this is referring to. And at that time shall arise Michael. Okay, so it's the time when Michael arises. Still clueless? Me too. Okay. The great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. Okay, so at that time, Michael arises and there's a time of trouble, but, but this is a unique time of trouble. This is a trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. Okay, so this is uh, a time when Michael arises to help God's people because the trouble is so severe. As a matter of fact, it, it's a time of trouble that has never been experienced before. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Okay, so it's a time of trouble. It's a, we're getting some help from Michael. And it's a time where God's people are delivered. Okay? And watch this. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So it is the deliverance. What time is being referred to here? The time is referring to the time when everyone's name who is written in the book will be delivered. When is that time? Well, that's the very end, isn't it? 
That, that is, uh, we've just now jumped way into the future. We've now just landed squarely um, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, 26 through 27. And they will bring into it, that is the new heavens and the new earth, that's the, what it it's referring to there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, this is a different book. This is another book than the book I was talking about before. This book was written before the foundations of the earth. This is the book that contains the names of God's elect. So if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, here's what that means. It, okay, I don't have time to unpack all those implications. Uh, my mind just almost spun out of control. Here's, here's what that means. That happens a lot. Um, first, it, it means this. It means God knows your name. If, you, if you're a Christian, it means God knows your name. It, it, it means before the foundations of the earth, he sat down in his book and he, he opened it up and he wrote down your name and he thought, I'm going to place my love on them. I'm, I'm going to care for them. I'm, I'm going I'm to be about their well-being. I'm going to be so dedicated to their joy that I'm going to send my son Jesus to die in their place for their sin. I'm going to craft their future, which is going to be for my glory and for their good because they're my daughter, they're my son, and I love them. That's what that means. That's incredible. So there is this book. Now, that is how we are to understand what time uh, this is referring to. The only way to make sense of this text, to understand it, is to understand that this is referring to the final end of time, the end of the end. Uh, and those whose names are written in the book will be delivered. Okay? Um, what we see here uh, is a picture of the end times. Now, uh, a question that I get a lot is, Pastor, um, are we in the end times? Here is my answer to that. Yes. Yes, we are. Now, my understanding of the end times might be a little bit different than the person who's asking me that question, but my understanding of the end times is this. The end times began with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we are still in the end times today. A lot of times we think the end times, we're looking for some short seven-year period of time or uh, some shorter period of time. Uh, but in my understanding of the scriptures, the end times are, are very long. Uh, but what we are, and, and the, the end times could end next month. Uh, it could be another two millennia. I don't know. Um, so what we're seeing here is the end of the end times. When, when Jesus returns, when that great book, the Lamb's Book of Life, is opened up and those whose names are found in that book um, are ushered into eternal life. That's why it says here in verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting Contempt. Amazingly, we are told that there will be a double resurrection. There is a double resurrection. Some are raised unto eternal life. 
What does that mean? That means in God's forever kingdom. That means new heaven, new earth, together with Jesus and his people forever with him, some to everlasting shame and contempt. What does that mean? Uh, that means hell. That means separated from God um, in a place of torment and pain and shame. Now, this text is the death of naturalism. Naturalism would state that there is nothing beyond the grave, right? You, you turn into worm food and that's it, it's over. They put you in the box, they put you in the ground and you are done. It, there, there's nothing beyond that. This text says no, there is a end day coming when there is a resurrection from the dead and both... Okay, those who follow God and those who do not follow God both have an eternal future ahead of them. This is also the death to a doctrine called annihilationism. Annihilationism states that God is so loving and so good that he would never send anyone to hell. That, that makes God mean and angry and cranky, and, and we don't like that type of God. We don't want to believe in a God who is full of wrath and justice. And so therefore, um, people who love God and serve God, when they die, they do go to heaven because that's the nice part. But people who don't love God and don't serve God, when they die, they simply cease to exist. They are annihilated, okay? And so all the passages in hell, those are figurative, they're not literal, we, sh we shouldn't look at those, let's not read those. Um, this text could not be more clear. Some to eternal life, some to eternal shame and contempt. This text is also the death to any other uh, beliefs kind of tagging onto or, or, or trying to piggyback on annihilationism. I, I've read some that, that say um, that those who do not love God or do not serve God, they are punished in hell or, or are separated from him for a time until they have you know, paid their payment uh, and then they either are annihilated or uh, have a chance to get back into heaven. Again, this text could not be more clear. If it's not clear enough, let's go ahead and look at the words of Jesus from Matthew 25, 31 through 34. I'm also going to read verse 31. Here is what Jesus has to say. When the Son of Man comes, stop right there. Jesus just called himself the Son of Man. Where does that come from? Daniel chapter 7, okay? So, so here he is referring to himself as the Son of Man, which comes from this very book that we're in that was just for free. Now, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit down on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the poor goats, I love goats, what can I say? If you guys don't know, I have goats on, on my farm. Anyway, uh, separate the sheep from the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, come, you will be blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the truth of the end of all things. 
As much as we don't like to talk about it, as much as, as you're discussing with a coworker, you might want to downplay the reality of hell. It is there in black and white. We hear it from Daniel. We hear it from the mouth of Jesus himself. There are two groups, two camps, nothing in the middle. Those who serve Jesus and will be with him in the new heavens, new earth, no sin, no shame, no tears, no crying anymore in that great, beautiful, wonderful place with him forever. The other group over here are those who have by their own will and choice have chosen not to love Jesus, not to serve Jesus, not to be about his mission, his local church. They have rejected God and all of his ways. And so in the end, God gives them what it is they have chosen and what they want which is eternal separation from him. He removes his love, his blessing from them, and they are placed in a place called hell, which is real, literal. It is punishment. It is forever. So the question this text drives us to ask is how do I know which way I'm going to go on that day? If, if there's going to be this day, and, and I've already told you the conclusion of the sermon is we need to live our whole life through the lens of this future glory. How, how do I know I'm going to future glory? How, how do I know I'm not going to shame and contempt? I, mean, that, I, I don't want shame and contempt. I want future glory with Jesus. So how do I know that's where I'm going? Romans Chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, pretty strong word, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's the prerequisite. There's what needs to happen. That that is the distinction. So the question is, have you died with Christ? Because if you have died with Christ, then you will, what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, you will certainly, for sure, 100%, no questions asked, we know you will certainly be resurrected with him. So again, I ask you the question, have you died with Christ? What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Did the old you die? Or are you still the same you? Some people like to believe, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I mean, I, I said the prayer. I marked the card. I went down front, cried with the youth pastor. They dunked me in the water. All my friends were there. It was great. Okay, cool. Um, are you still the same you that you were? I mean, I don't go to church, I don't read my Bible, I don't share my faith, I don't spend time in prayer, uh, I don't teach my kids about Jesus, I pretty much do whatever I want, but I'm a Christian, right? Then you haven't died. You're still the same you. And if you haven't died, then you can't be resurrected with him. The prerequisite to being resurrected with Christ is that you die with him. What that means practically is that we have placed our faith on the atoning work of Jesus. It means that we believe in substitutionary atonement. It means that as we look at the cross, we know in the spiritual realm, in a very real way, we were crucified with him. 
that all of our sins and all of our shame and all the things that we have done and all the things that we ever will do were in a very real way nailed to that cross so that we have died with him. And in the same way, on that third day, when Jesus gets up out of the grave and he walks out of the tomb in a very real spiritual way, we resurrected with him. And on the final day, there will be a literal resurrection when your old nasty bones will come up out of the ground and you will be given a new body, a new resurrection body, a a glorious, magnificent resurrection body. I'm talking about six pack abs, right? Flowing beard for the dudes. I mean, th- this is a, a, a new eternal body, one that does not wither, one that does not perish, one, one that does not get sick, one that does not uh, you know, you know, wear out. Th- this, this body is a forever body. And, and that's what you're given. And so if you want to know whether or not you're going to be ushered into eternal life on that resurrection day, the question is, have you died? Have you died with Christ? Have you placed your trust in his atoning work on the cross? Because if you have, if you've died with him, then you're going to resurrect with him. You're going to have a resurrection like his. But if you have not died, then the resurrection that you experience is a resurrection to shame and contempt. Um, That's just the first four verses. Let's, um, Let's move along. Verse 5, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when uh, the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all things would be finished. This is my favorite verse in this whole book. Verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. <laughs> then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Um, so there's Daniel. He lifts his eyes up, and he sees this messenger um, clothed in linen, whom has just unfolded to him 45 verses of future history. He looks up and he sees another messenger on the right side of the bank and there's another messenger standing on the left side of the bank and and the messenger that had been speaking with him, the one clothed in linen, is kind of floating above the water. And and a voice comes and says, when is this going to be over? When is the end? 
This is a question that people have been trying to solve since day one. When is this thing going to be over? People got charts and graphs and, uh, you know, and, and, and I mean, there's the bookstore, the Christian bookstore is filled with books that will try to tell you when the end is. And so the question is posed from one of the messengers to this main messenger, hey, when is the end? And this messenger tells him. And so right now, all of us should be sitting on the edge of our seat, notepads out, pencil in hand, getting ready to write down the final date so that our, our, our you know, eschatological chart can finally be complete. Eschatology is a study of the end times. So, 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 I mean, here it is. I'm about to tell you. He replies, it's for time, times, and half a time. There it is. Did you write that down? That's when it's going to be. What does that mean? Okay, so time, times, so one time, two times, because it's plural, that's two, and then half a time, so that's three and a half. There you go. That's when the end is, three and a half. Well, I mean, what, what, is that, what does that mean? I mean, is that three and a half days? Is it three and a half years, three and a half millennia, three and, I mean, three and a half decades, three and a half millennia? Could, I mean, can somebody shed some light on this thing? So, of course, you know me, I went to my faithful commentaries and got out all my books and sat down comfortably in my chair and began to read and read and read. And uh, I was reading this guy and he launches into this like six, seven page explanation of how, uh, you know, in the Bible, the number seven is the number of completion. And, and so if you take seven and then you here, we got three and a half. Well, that's, that's actually half of seven, isn't it? So uh, it's kind of half the half completed time before the blah, blah, blah. He goes on for like six pages and it gets, gets down to the bottom of the paragraph and he goes, but, but really nobody knows. <laughs> well, thanks, buddy. You could have saved me 17 pages. You could just say that at the beginning and I just would have flipped through. I would just be done with it. Well, we don't get left in the dark totally because uh, apparently um, he asks again. So uh, then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters. He raised his right hand uh, and raised his left hand towards heaven. That is, that's how you take an oath in the Old Testament by raising your right hand, just as we would stand before a judge and raise our right hand. But, but he raises his left hand too to say, you know, I promise, promise this is how it's going to unfold that it would be for times, time, and half a time, and then the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. Okay, so again, we know it's going to get bad for us in the end, and it gets even worse and worse and worse until the final end of the end. Look at verse 8 again. Again, I said this was my favorite one because apparently he didn't understand the times, time, and half a time either. Three and a half what? I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? G give me a little help here, messenger. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. Okay, so again, now all of us can be back up on the edge of our seat because he's asked for some help and this, this messenger is going to tell him the answer. He, he's going he's to give him the help. Okay, so skip down to verse 11. Uh, and from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and uh, the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be uh, 1,290 days and blessed is the one who arrives at 1,335 days. There you go. That's the answer. Did you write that down? Right? I mean, like, right now, all of us are like transported back to algebra class. You know, you, the teacher would say something. You're like, I have no idea what that means. You raise your hand. Can you explain that again? She would further explain it and you felt even dumber. This is exactly what's happening in this text. Okay, there's just, there's a lot of questions here. And I know we're kind of doing this in a jovial way, but 
Um, but, but again, we, we have to ask questions because look, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, okay, is that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Maybe. And the abomination that makes desolate is set up. Okay, so, so it's gotta be these number of days if we take them as literal days. Some do, some don't. Um, I, I don't think you should. Uh, but, but it is some specific period of time after the abomination that makes desolate is set up. The problem is that phrase is used to mean multiple different things throughout the Bible. So, so what is this particular abomination? Because there are several abominations that make desolate. So which one is this one? The answer is nobody knows. <laughs> that's, that's the answer. The, the answer is no, nobody, nobody knows um, exactly which one this is. So sadly, it doesn't tell us in 2026, the skies are going to open up. It, it, it doesn't unfold that to us at all. What we see rather than a concern for the length of time before his return is God's concern for how people will live until that time. Did you see that in the text? Look at it. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed. Look at verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. He, he's going, how long, how long? And, and he goes, yeah, there are gonna be some people who know that day is coming and they purify themselves and make themselves white and refined. They, they, they know that day is coming. It, it is coming. How long? Don't know. But because I don't know, I'm, I'm gonna chase after the Lord today as hard as I can. I'm, I'm going to make myself refined and, and, and I'm going to try to love and serve Jesus as best I can because there is such a massive question mark over that day. But the wicked shall act wickedly and no one shall understand. But listen to this. But those who are wise shall understand. When the sky breaks open and, and the trumpet sounds, we're given our new resurrection bodies. We stand before Jesus. That great dragon is thrown into hellfire and we're ushered into the new heavens and new earth. I'll, I'll turn and I'll look at the person standing next to me and they'll turn and look at me and we'll say, makes sense. I get it now. I understand now. So, the future knowledge of that great coming day determines my actions and my attitudes for today. The, the knowledge of that, of that future coming day. Despite all of the confusion, the resurrection uh, from the dead couldn't be more clear uh, in this text. So a few quick takeaways. We're going to run through these very quickly. You can jot these down if you are a note taker. Number one, resurrection from the dead means death is not the end. Resurrection from the dead means death isn't the end. It means those loved ones who love Jesus and have gone before us that wasn't the final chapter. Seeing them laying in their hospital bed, shriveled up and, and attacked by old age or cancer or... That's not the end. Death isn't the end. When, when people are tragically taken away from us in, in car accidents or, or, or whatever, that, that's not the end. Death isn't the end because there is a resurrection to come. 
There's, there's purpose and meaning to this life. Don't, don't, don't you see how the resurrection from the dead means that there's purpose and meaning in this life? If, if the grave is the end, but the grave isn't the end, so that means that we can live for something bigger than ourselves. We can live for something more than just acquiring a lot of stuff. So the resurrection from the dead means death here on this earth is, is not the end. Number two, resurrection from the dead means any sacrifice for Jesus will not be in vain. Any sacrifice you make for Jesus is not in vain. If death is the end, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then sacrificing for Jesus, his church, is silly. It's It's pointless. But if we are resurrected from the dead and ushered into a forever kingdom with Jesus, then any and all sacrifice that you make for Jesus is totally worth it. It's totally worth it to give to your local church. It's totally worth it to, to sacrifice your time, your talent, and your treasure to serve other people in this church. It's totally worth it to tell other people about Jesus and invite them to church. It's totally worth it to break down and cry with another brother and sister in Christ as they're struggling with an issue and lay hands on them and pray for them and, and, and to help carry the burden with them, even though it's painful for you to even help them carry the burden, even though it costs you time, even though it's inconvenient, it's totally worth it. Number three, resurrection from the dead means starting in my home and beyond I proclaim the coming of that day. It means I kneel down to my daughters and I tell them there's coming the resurrection of the dead. And, and, and we must now fashion our home and our life around the coming of that day. It, it, it means I communicate that truth to my wife and to my children. And then outside of my home, beyond to people that I see at the supermarket or people that, that are doing repairs on my car or, or, or wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, if, if the resurrection of the dead is really happening, I better tell people. Fourth and finally, resurrection from the dead means I live in light of the future glory. We will stand before Jesus, okay? We will stand before Jesus. And, and I'm gonna close with this thought. I want you to see the weight of that. I want you to feel the weight of it. And I also want you to feel the total comfort and ease that that will be. It's both. It's both. It's a heavy thing to stand before the Lord and give an account of your life. That's a heavy thing. And listen, friends, all things will be called into account. And so we need to think, I've got to stand before Jesus. Should I do this or not? Because I've got, I've got to give an account to Jesus. It's a heavy thing. But listen, it's also a very light thing. Here's why. Because he is going to say, I covered you. I took care of it. When, when you messed up here, when you blew it there, I got you covered. He, he is not going to be wagging his finger. He, he's not going to be looking down his nose at you, peering over the top of his glasses, shaking his head. What he is going to do, you will stand, you will give an account, that will be heavy, but 
He, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And Jesus opens up his arms to those who are his and he hugs them, he loves them, and he welcomes them into his kingdom. He says, come in, son, come in, daughter, rest with me forever. That day's coming, that great day. May we live our life in light of that future glory. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that anything I have said that was not helpful or confusing, uh, you would erase from the minds of these poor people. <laughs> um, I pray that anything that was from your word and was useful and profitable, uh, you would bury it deep in their soul and deep in their heart. Uh, this was very dense work, very hard uh, going through this great book, um, we are grateful for all of the things that you revealed to Daniel. We're grateful for our opportunity to study it, to know it, uh, to be confounded and confused by it, uh, but to also be encouraged by it. Uh, and so, God, we praise your name for preserving this great word to us. Help us as a people to live in light uh, of that future glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.